0: Hey, Karen Devaney. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast. Like
1: how we love to bake and talk about murder. That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Cause if you kill people, we will talk about you. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far you gone.
0: LA. Not many people stop for a guy these days. I'm afraid of a stick up, maybe.
1: This buggy belongs
0: to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you
1: killed him. Never mind that. Stop take a card. Huh? What am I doing with card?
0: You can keep it. I've got 51
1: left. <laughs> <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest. We'll deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Cult-worthy Classic. My name is Antonio Palacios, I'm your host, and we're doing a little bit different kind of episode this week. We are kicking off the month of June, Pride Month with a conversation about the celluloid closet about homosexual lgbtq queer filmmakers actors directors producers stars in hollywood people that spent many of the years of their lives hiding their true identities who they were and what was important to them from the studios from the audiences from the press almost living two lives one life for the studio and one life for themselves. And joining me today is uh, one of my best friends and frequent collaborator of the Cultworthy Classic, Mikey Jones. Mikey, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. I'll be happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And let's talk about when we first did our, our episode two of this show together, which was the Who Killed Teddy Bear episode. I brought you on because you knew a lot about Sal Mineo, things that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And that story goes a lot deeper than than just Sal Mineo. There were many, many stars, many, many people involved in the entertainment industry, an industry known for having many different flavors of life and how they kind of had to like lead these double lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so many stories about actors, directors, producers who had to live double lives or were forced into what they used to term lavender marriages to save their careers, to save their images. Because back in those days, there were morality clauses in your contract that stems from the 1920s. I'm sorry, probably, probably pre 1920s, but definitely from the silent era Uh, there was a point when they were really worried about religious leaders telling their congregations to boycott films. And they were really worried that some of these scandals that had come up would end Hollywood. And so part of it was self-governance. We've talked a little bit about some of the production codes that were put into place. And part of that, too, was morality clauses in your contract. And so the studio could effectively say, hey, if you don't marry this other actress that's a lesbian, then your contract is terminated. You're done. There's, there's also other stories that are really fascinating about uh, how the studios would have doctors on set to provide abortions or a- illegal drugs just so these actors and actresses could get their fix or have that unwanted pregnancy taken care of discreetly so that they wouldn't be caught out on the streets doing this stuff. So it was... A lot of control back then and unfortunately led to a lot of people not being able to be who they were.
1: And do you think this was something that was mostly prevalent in American studios, in American entertainment industries? Because you always hear about like the French and and the Swedish film industries being a little bit more, I'm going to say liberal with their, their thoughts on sexuality, homosexuality, sexual identity, eroticism. And I've always thought that that was something that was more based in American cultures, mostly because of Christianity. But you might know a little bit more about that than I do.
0: Well, great question. As far as, I mean, America, you know, for, for many years, that was kind of the, the the powerhouse for filmmaking. You know, America, American cinema really dominated the industry. So actors and actresses that were popular in other countries would come to America mm-hmm. You know, that's how we have Marlena Dietrich, uh, Greta Garbo, you know, some of these greats were, were brought in from other countries because they they had more opportunity. Also, I mean, America was only you know one of the few countries really making making films during some of the wars, you know, because we weren't, you know, our country wasn't as war torn. You know, we didn't have bombs going off. We didn't have a lot of those things happening. Um, I know that in the silent era in Germany, there were two big films that people cite now that were made Uh, that dealt with homosexuality. Uh, One was called Michael, and another one was called Sex and Chains. And those both uh, dealt with... One was a a prison film dealing with homosexuality. And there were a lot more films like that made. I know that when the the Nazis took power, a lot of these films were destroyed, or they attempted to destroy them because they were seen as degenerative. And and that's a lot of the case with a lot of other art, too.
1: And it's interesting to me because... For as long as there's been written word, as long as there's been plays or drama or, you know, literature and prose, there's always been a little bit a hint of, let's not even say homosexuality, but like gender role reversal has always been something of a of a plot pusher. Even back to Shakespearean times, you know, we all know that there were no female actresses. We've all seen Shakespeare in Love. We've all read the history books. Yeah. Take Twelfth Night and take things like that, where gender role reversal as a plot driver has always been something of a basis that a lot of people have enjoyed, been entertained by, but played for laughs.
0: Yeah, um, that that's part of the thing, and you see that with with cinema as well. In American cinema, like you had these German films that really dealt with homosexuality on a level of, you know, like addressing it in in more somber tones, not as something that was comical. Um, I, I can't remember the film, but there's a movie with a, a couple and they're slumming it and they go to a, a bar and you quickly realize they're in a gay bar. You see men coupled at tables together and you have these two men acting very effeminate and they're in French maid uniforms singing a song in very high pitched tones dancing around and everybody's laughing. And it was it was a comic relief. You know, um, uh, there's a, a William Haynes who we're going to talk about later. There's a film that he did. Um, I think it's a free soul but it was a silent era film, and there's a gay character in it who's, who's very, very effeminate, and he's the comic relief. You know, he's making fun of it. I mean, he's being made fun of in, in, the, uh, in the film. And so, so yeah, they, they did represent homosexuals in films early on in U.S. cinema, but it was presented as comic relief. There's a, a film from the, from the 60s with Shirley MacLaine, I think it's called the the children's hour or the child's hour Mm -hmm. that deals with homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a pretty shocking film for its day.
1: You were a dear friend who was loved, that's
0: all. Certainly there can be nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly natural
1: that I should be fond of you. Why, we've known each other since we were 17, and I always thought that... Why are you saying all of this? Because I do love you. but maybe I love you the way they said I love you. I
0: don't know. Because it, it doesn't bring it in as comic relief.
1: That's pretty much after the codes were starting to crumble. And you start seeing these more... Adventurous. Yeah, adult themes coming out in
0: films, like Anatomy of a Murder with uh, Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. You have very frank discussion and conversation about, you know, it's a, it's a rape trial, I believe. And there's very, con- you know, frank conversation about rape and, you know, they mentioned women's panties and it's like even watching that now, like even though now we see everything in film, but watching it in that context of back then, it's, it's almost still kind of shocking because you're not expecting it in this film. And it kind of had this, uh, I had a jazz soundtrack, Mm -hmm. which I know you did a soundtrack show earlier, so this probably means a little something to you, but they just, you know, just kind of a very, films push the limits for its time.
1: Well, and you know, Hitchcock was not shy of, of kind of poking that, that bear in the ribs of like the homosexual undertones in, in his films, especially in the fifties and early sixties. Rope, for example. You oh, know, yes. there is Leopold definitely yep. there is definitely homosexual undertones in Rope. It doesn't come right out and say it, but, you know, it's there. And that was part of the genius of, of his filmmaking.
0: Yeah. Oh, just I was going to say in, in Rope, you have that scene. And this is based off of the 19. I don't know the exact year, but it was in the early 20s. this Leopold and Loeb murder. Um, and they were a gay couple you know they they were it was it was fact that they they were they were sexually involved and so that's kind of what part of what made it's such a sensational story and, and really didn't do a lot of good for the gay community because it was look at these degenerates. Look what they did. They, they murdered a 14 year old boy mm-hmm. and they just did it to see what it would be like to murder someone. And so in Rope, you have that part where after they kill their their classmate, these two guys, they're talking and it's this really uncomfortable conversation. And one of them looks at the other and says. What was it like for you? Yeah, and it's just—it's it, there's so many homoerotic notes, almost like Hitchcock is intentionally taking this idea of, you know, homosexuality, you know, a sex act with another man being the equivalent of murder. Yeah, or on that level. Got it. He's got it. He knows. He knows. He knows. All right. He, he knows. knows. Right, easy. I'll take care you of know, it. you. Won't. I'd just as soon kill you as kill him. Sona. This is what you wanted, isn't it? Somebody else to know. Somebody else to see how brilliant you are, just like at school. I told you we'd find out. But oh no, no, you have to have him here. And now we're done for it. Now I shut No, you made me do it and I hate you. I hate both of us. No. Which is a fascinating idea to play with back in that time.
1: And it almost feels to me like it's the entertainment industry um, the writers, the producers, the directors of all those films from like the 20s to the 60s, you know, pretty much Stonewall is where everything changed, where we start seeing more representations of homosexuals in films, flattering or not. Most of them weren't when they were first really kind of putting them out there in the yeah. 70s. But you, you had these films that would hint at these homosexual character traits without fully coming out and say where they're homosexuals, you would have the flamboyant neighbor, you would have the flamboyant butler or something like that mm-hmm. without coming out and saying it. Yet at the same time in Hollywood, you really could not afford to be openly homosexual and a working actor, actress, producer, or director. And there's a weird part of irony to that, but I think that's kind of you know Hollywood's way of like, hey, listen, Christian America, who's got their panties in a bunch, because of all of this stuff that you're worried about, you know, saving the children from homosexuals and in movies, we're going to still make these movies with these characters, but we're not going to tell you that they're homosexual. We're just going to let it sit there and it's going to be dissected by the people who know. And then in 30 years when it's, you know, not even an issue anymore, when it comes to entertainment, you're going to look like idiots as we start kind of breaking this down for the movie going public.
0: Yeah. And and it's, it's interesting to note, 1895, if you want to go back that far into cinema history, one of the earliest depictions or the first notable suggestions of homosexuality in film was in a experimental film. It was just one of those little shorts. It was called the Dixon Experimental Sound Film, and it features two men dancing together like holding each other in their arms, dancing. And so it, it's almost like it has been there from the start. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like it's the foundation of cinema was laid and there's a big old gay brick in it. Yeah. You know, it's like right there. And it keeps it keeps coming up again and again.
1: Well, I mean, you and I both kind of grew up in the entertainment industry in the sense of like we're both theater kids and film mm-hmm. kids. And it's it is impossible to be in that industry without knowing homosexual lgbtq people like right. most of the people in the industry that i know were either homosexual by <laughs> queer but it's such a it's a weird thing that like it is one of the biggest draws the entertainment industry for mm-hmm. middle class america yet under the table at this time there are all of these people with these lifestyles mm-hmm it's so, and especially the, the theater industry, Broadway, you know, it is kind of like the Mecca for, for performers and most performers, homosexual or not, are assumed to be homosexual.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that one of the things that you see is theater. Now, granted, I'm not, not the biggest theater buff on the planet, but theater didn't have the same production codes that the cinemas did. So an actor could, you know where they may be barred from movies at a certain time frame. They could exist more how they were and not worry about the same backlash in theater as they did with with the studio system when that was in place.
1: Now let's kind of talk about like the the progression of how homosexuality became more accepted into these films, or like let's say eased into these films of the days. So the, I think the earliest example, like we were talking about are early examples of gender role reversals. Mm-hmm. One of the earliest ones that comes to mind in a sound picture would be Marlene Dietrich in Morocco. Yep,
0: 1930 and she's actually um the first leading lady to kiss another female on screen. And she's in drag at the time. She's dressed up in a tuxedo and that's been called like one of the most erotic scenes in cinema just because it's it's and I think if at the time uh, I remember I remember hearing that it wasn't necessarily planned like that. It was it was just basically she's supposed to be performing and I think the, the kiss may have been something just kind of off the cuff
1: that happened. Nineteen thirty-six, you have Katherine Hepburn in a film called Sylvia Scarlet, which was widely <laughs> unsuccessful, but relevant because it was one of the earliest examples of a female to male transition in a film.
0: Yeah. Um also uh nineteen thirty one, Charlie Chaplin, City Lights, if you recall the 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 rich drunk. That he's associating with, you—you really—it's played off in a way like you—you you question what exactly is their relationship. Yeah, you know because like why does the drunk guy? You know why do they keep seeking each other out? You know it's obvious in Charlie Chaplin's case. You know the little tramp somebody with money, but then the rich guy—what's he getting out of it?
1: You know. And then one of the most famous ones was Victor Victoria. Yep. Which was originally a stage play, then eventually a film about a a female who plays a male impersonating a female. And it was later remade, I think, with Blake Edwards uh, directing. Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. I blanked for a second, uh, <laughs> starring in the role. And she she did that role on Broadway as well. And uh, I always remember that one because Robert Preston, who played the music man, plays a very iconic queer character in that film, who at the end of the film appears in drag as well. I mean, it's one of those, again, gender-bending, gender-breaking Films, which mm-hmm. was a comedy. Yeah. If it was to be played off as a straight drama, it would make people uncomfortable because you're playing it off as a comedy and as a musical. It was almost like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, you know? Yeah. You were saying, Mr. Marshall. Well, I. I just find it hard to believe that you're a man. Because you found me attractive as a woman?
0: Yes, as a matter of fact.
1: It happens frequently. Not to me just proves the old adage, there's a first time for everything. I don't think so. But you're not 100% sure. Practically. Ah, but to a man like you, someone who believes he could never, under any circumstances, find another man attractive, the margin between practically and for sure must be as wide as the Grand Canyon. If you were so we really wanted to talk about two particular entertainers today that don't get enough recognition, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely not. I honestly did not know about either of them in detail until you started showing me their films. You started kind of telling me their backstory. And since we're doing like this little quick episode, just to talk about this lifestyle was like back in the teens, 20s, and 30s as the film industry is really taking off, I feel like these two entertainers that we're about to talk about should be more iconic in today's standard, especially as we're talking about Pride Month coming up, is this weird climate that we live in where here we are in 2020 and we are still fighting for rights and for recognition and acceptance of LGTBQA plus communities.
0: Absolutely, and we're also, I feel like we're we're starting to have to make sure that rights that we've gotten aren't going to be taken away now with what we've seen happen, you know? It's almost like there's a great backpedaling to remove some of these rights. And, and I think that's kind of becoming some of the fight now. It's making sure we don't lose rights in addition to making sure that we keep getting rights and moving forward with that. But what is most important for me about these two performers is that they are a great example of performers that lived their lives. Yes. They didn't compromise who they were. And so that's why I wanted to talk about them As well, because there's a lot of examples of rumors or, well, who is doing this? Who's doing this? And kind of hearsay from the day. But these two are are pretty solid examples of two, you know, two people in, in Hollywood that chose to live their lives. Classic Hollywood. Classic Hollywood. Absolutely. Like both of these people go back to the silent era. Um, the first one we are going to talk about is the director Dorothy Arsner. The, the two that are available now by Dorothy Arsner as a director um, are Merrily We Go to Hell with Frederick March and, and Sylvia Sidney. Sylvia Sidney. And that's 1934, I believe. And then the other one is uh, Dance Girl Dance from 1940. And that notably stars Lucia Ball.
1: Now, you showed me Merrily We Go to Hell, and I fell in love with that film. And it doesn't really push, like, the, anything of a homosexual angle on it. I mean, it could in the undertones. Mm-hmm. Mostly it is a precursor to open marriages and polyamory. I'm a little oh. drunk. Can you excuse me?
0: I think everyone here is a little drunk,
1: but I'll excuse you.
0: Terry, you're impossible. What did you do with the ring? I ought to be shot. I lost it. Well,
1: Merrily, we go to hell. Merrily, you stop this and go to work. Come
0: on. Madam, have you no answer for me?
1: If I said yes, I should mean no. And if I said no, I should mean yes. But my silence is all true. And right.
0: for you. The, the, the storyline involves a, a playwright who is, he's, he's a struggling playwright. He's not successful yet. And he, he, he meets a rich girl and, and marries her. And... He becomes a successful playwright. One of his plays is being produced, but the female lead is going to an ex girlfriend of his. And so they end up having an affair, and his wife finds out about it. And instead of going, Okay, I want a divorce, we're done, she goes, All right, we can have a modern marriage if you want. But just as it affords you certain rights, it affords me certain rights. So she—it's—it's it's very much a feminist film in a lot of ways. Yeah. She goes off and has her affairs and does her thing, and uh, there's there's more to the film than that. And we won't we won't ruin it for you if you want to watch it. But very much a feminist film.
1: You know, it's it's the whole what's good for the goose is good for the gander is kind of the the theme mm-hmm. in the middle. And Sylvia Sidney, absolutely gorgeous. I've always loved her. But I'd never seen that film, and she is just stunning. She is so just eloquent in her delivery and her performance, but she also plays one of the best on-screen drunks I've ever seen when everything starts to fall apart and her life becomes almost unbearable because there really is love there, but there's also a lot of ego, and that's kind of what like helps drive the story further is like this battle of egos between the two of them. Mm -hmm. But when you told me about Dorothy Arzner as the director and her story after we watched the film, it makes the film seem that much more relevant because it is a story being told by someone with a secret. Mm -hmm. The film is all about secrets. The film is all about wanting to live the life that you choose, but having to make sacrifices to not be brought down in society. Right. And Dorothy is is notable because she
0: maintained a forty year relationship with Marion Morgan, who was a dancer and choreographer, and she was sixteen years Arzner's senior, and they ended up working together. Um, she did some of the choreography in Dance Girl Dance, and she did try to keep her private life private, but never hid the fact that she was a lesbian you know never really hit the fact from anyone in Hollywood that she she was she was homosexual and she did a lot of brave things in her career she launched the careers of a number of actresses including Catherine Hepburn, Rosalind Russell, and Lucille Ball. She was the first woman to join the Directors Guild of America. She also, very notably, Clara Bow was in a film called The Wild Party in 1929, which Dorothy Arzner directed, and it was Clara Bow's first talkie. And so Dorothy Arzner was also the first woman to direct a talkie. Mm -hmm. But um, Clara Bow, there was an explosion on set, one of the microphones blew up, and Clara Bow was already really nervous. And so Dorothy Arzner, to help comfort her, asked one of the guys on set, do you fish? And he said, yeah. And so she said, get your fishing pole. He came back onto set, they connected the microphone to the fishing pole, and she just, she followed Clara Beau around with it, and Clara Beau was able to do a more natural performance and kind of get over her fear of talking and singing in a film.
1: And Thus inventing... The boom mic. The boom mic. Yeah. So
0: you know, some some amazing contributions to film as far as innovations and talent, and just the fact that she, she lived her life... You know, she, she had a 40 year relationship with another woman and, and never made it a point to hide it. Um, she did retire pretty early in film and 1943 was her last film. Um, she did continue. I think she um, started some cinema classes at a university, but she never disclosed her reasons for for wanting to leave, leave directing. Um, it, it could have been just due to, to sexism and she could have just kind of realized, OK, maybe I've taken this as far as I can go. But it's, it's really just speculation why she left.
1: Well, I also think that we don't hear a lot of scandals about her Mm -hmm. because she apparently didn't have that kind of like ego that an egomaniacal director of the time would have where they have to be in the magazines, where they have to be in all the press releases. And I think that got her a lot more leeway with people being more accepting of her lifestyle because she wasn't in a position where the media or the press really cared. She was not like a glamorous, gorgeous starlet because that would make a magazine cover. Right.
0: She, in fact, she, her clothing choices were incredibly unconventional for a woman in her day. She wore men's suits or straight dresses. You know, just not not making a big deal about fashion, just doing what was practical. Yeah. And what she liked, probably, you know.
1: And you showed me a documentary about her on YouTube, which really kind of spoke to that. I suggest you go find it, uh, listeners, because it's a fascinating, quick little watch about this director that not a lot of people really know about and I feel is very iconic. She she also had a she had a great sense for talent. Um
0: you know Dance Girl Dance was edited by Robert Weiss. And guess what his next film was? Citizen Kane. Highly celebrated editor, highly celebrated film. Dance Girl Dance is available by criterion. And it's notable because it's also considered a feminist film because you don't have the the female characters fighting against each other. They're very supportive of each other. And it's not this you know, this movie where there's these men-crazed women that just, you know, are trying to find a man to to support them. They're they're intent on finding their careers and not fighting each other, being supportive of each other. So there's a really great quote from Joan Crawford about Dorothy Arzner. And Joan says, I'd like to think every director I've worked with has fallen in love with
1: me. I know Dorothy Arzner did. (laughs) I like it. Hey there, Cultworthy Podcast listeners. I have an amazing new app for you. It is called Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them aloud to you in a natural human voice, unlike mine. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable all in one place. You can browse articles and topics from which you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you'd like from sports, tech, business, science, bitcoin, even the Kardashians. It will find you the latest articles and read them to you aloud. And they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries, including mine, The Cult Worthy Podcast. They even have digital radio. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link available in my episode notes. That's C-U-L-T-C-A-S-T to receive one month free premium subscription. Once again, check out Newsly and thank you for listening to the Cult Worthy Podcast. Now the next performer we're going to talk about, again, I had heard the name, but I never knew a lot of his works until you had me watch. A silent film, and I'm I'm not huge on silent films, you got me into silent films, and the one that you had me seek out was probably one of my favorite first-time viewings of last year when I saw it, and that was a film, Show People, starring William Haynes.
0: Directed in 1927 by one of my favorite silent film directors, King Vidor, and it it uh, famously stars Marion Davies, who was um, the, the lover of William Randolph Hearst. The newspaper, mongrel.
1: So if you've ever seen the film The Cat's Meow or Mank, which came out last year with Gary Oldman, that really kind of tackles the whole Marion Davies, William Randolph Hearst relationship and all of its ups and downs with people. But that film was just absolutely incredible because it was showing the seedy underbelly of the Hollywood machine in the Hollywood machine's infancy. We're not even to talking films yet. The industry's only been around for like 20 years. And it was kind of like this expose of what really happens to these starlets that literally get off the bus or get off dad's jalopy in the city of Hollywood and what becomes of them. So how about you tell us a little bit more about uh, William Haynes and his progression through his kind of limited career? Yeah.
0: Um, he's, he's also one of my favorites, uh, favorite actors. Um, not only was he just he had that, that great star quality look, but just a great actor, fun, per, fun personality. I mean, even in silent film, y- you really see his personality shine, just very expressive face. You know, you just you, you fall in love with him real quick in any of his films. But he was discovered by a talent scout and signed with Golden Pictures in 1922. He gained Pretty quick momentum in films and he received favorable favorable reviews in 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 pretty much everything he did. There was a film in nineteen twenty-six called Brown of Harvard, and this performance was notable because it really solidified him as the wise, cracking, arrogant, leading man, which which he became kind of famous for, and I think you really see in show people. But he, he really plays it with a lot of heart,
1: you know. I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's They're silent films. So you are getting their dialogue through these cards of dialogue. You're not hearing the the dialogue spoken aloud. It kind of reminds me of in Singing in the Rain where um Debbie Reynolds is making fun of Gene Kelly, you know, saying, oh, anyone can just do the pantomime, the ahs, <laughs> the Os, the e's, yes. the U's," And, you know, great scene, but there is some truth to that. Honestly, The silent films I had seen before show people were mostly like the expressionist films that everyone knows about. Metropolis,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Nosferatu, things like that. But this was one of the first films I had seen that was a character study. And it was so amazing to me how these characters were portrayed and convincingly so without sound. And so with William Haynes' performance in that, where he plays, you know, he's kind of like the comic relief slash leading man of this film. Like, he kind of makes these comedies in the silent films that he's doing, while Marion Davies kind of starts off in the comedies and eventually moves on to dramas and becomes more of like a prolific star than he is. But the way that he delivers his lines, the way his performances are, it reminds me a lot of what George Clooney would do these days. Mm -hmm. There, there is, there is a charm, there is a suaveness, but it's kind of also at the same time, gentle and humorous, but charming at the same time. And it's interesting you bring
0: up George Clooney because I was just thinking if, if there was a biopic made about William Haynes, young George Clooney would have played him perfectly.
1: Yeah, I agree a hundred percent on that one.
0: All right. So with, yeah, with William Haynes, um, he, he gained a lot of success quickly in, in cinema and in, in 1926 during a trip to New York he met a, a man named Jimmy Shields and it was initially on a hookup I think um, Jimmy was in the armed forces in some some regard there was there's pretty instant connection between the two of them because William Haynes convinced Shields to move to Los Angeles promising to help get him work in, in movies as an extra and they they soon began living together and were a committed couple. When, uh, when Haynes died of lung cancer, they were together. And uh, his, his partner at the time put on his pajamas a few months after his death in March, wrote a suicide note saying he couldn't go on without William anymore. To me, it's just like a true testament of love. You know, they were together from 1926 to 1973. They were together. They ran a business together. But what ended up happening with William Haynes is that in 1930, he was basically confronted about his homosexuality by the studios and they wanted to put him in a lavender marriage and Joan Crawford again stepped in and they were good friends and she said that she would marry him and he said no Joni honey that's not the way it works they they connect they, they hook up the the men that like men with the women that like women and you like men and I like men it would never work out they remained friends but effectively William Said no, I'm not going to deny my relationship with with Jimmy. I'm not going to compromise who I am. And he 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 let MGM terminate his contract and he walked away from it. Him and Jimmy started a very successful interior decorating firm and antique shop. Um, some of his clients included Nancy Reagan. He was lifelong friends with her, and he he moved on to a very successful career in interior design he was more than likely
1: accepted for who he was as a person.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was able to live his life and he he had a, a quote later on where he was saying he was glad to be out of films because he could see his friends that really embraced the Hollywood system shine and show their best without him being stuck and seeing the ugly side with the studios.
1: I mean, fascinating stories about fascinating entertainers. And those are just two of many, you know, the celluloid closet was deep, and th- there's something to be said too about like the homosexuality, but I'd say more prominently bisexuality of these entertainers mm-hmm. in in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s until it became more appreciated wouldn't you think
0: yeah bisexuality was a little more open just because i think those stars could move more fluidly into relationships with the opposite sex and and they could dispel any rumors as oh i'm an actor you know everybody kind of says that about me and 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 even now though gay actors like there's a uh there's an actor who who i was reading about recently and he accepted a gay role and his his agent told him Do not play gay because you're going to get stuck in that and no one will hire you. So even now, you know, where it's more accepted, there's still this thing of like, okay, well, if you're gay and play gay, you're always going to play gay. And if you're straight and you play gay, then people aren't going to want to hire you. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's still we're still getting there. You know,
1: we're still still making progress. But I do think there are some muddled watered sometimes where. You know, an actor's sincerity gets called into question. Where I've seen people get upset if a straight character plays gay. I've seen people get upset if a gay character plays straight because now they are, you know, kind of denying who they are and and not taking the roles of of a homosexual.
0: Yeah, and there it it's viewed as, uh, you know, maybe it's harder for a gay gay actor to get a part because they're gay. So you have this actor, the straight actor, who has no problem getting getting parts, taking work away from a gay actor, which, I mean, to me, that's kind of what acting is all about. I think there are there are places where that works, that, that line of thinking works as you're taking this work away from so-and-so um, or from this group. I think it's, uh, for me personally, um, I, I don't see a problem with a, a straight actor playing a gay part because, you know, the gays have been playing straight for forever. You know, (laughs) we got real good at it guys. I mean, there's a lot of gay actors out there that you don't even know are gay yet. Probably. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's their choice. People should be able to live how they want. They should stay in the closet if they want. They should come out if they want. But, but that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot more out there. There's a really great biography by the way about William Haynes Mm -hmm. that I read. Uh, It was written by William J. Mann uh, and it's called Wisecracker, The Life and Times of William Haynes, Hollywood's First
1: Openly Gay Star. Well, I got to read that one now. It's,
0: it's, it's great. And it's available on Audible so you can listen to it. And it's, it's a really great performance as well.
1: You know, and it's really interesting because I have read a lot of Hollywood biographies. I've read biographies about Walt Disney, about Howard Hughes, Cary Grant, Marlon Brando. Every single one of those biographies has some kind of of rumor or some kind of suspicion mm-hmm. of some kind of homosexual behavior or activity, some more than others. And they're all written in the sense of like, oh, this was what they were doing on the side, almost as if it was like a taboo, which it was back then. But I honestly feel like these days, if we're going to hold people accountable for something that was almost 100 years ago now in the film industry, we, we got some growing up to do, you mm-hmm. know? Like we're in this this time of like where acceptance is at its strongest, but it's still an uphill battle, especially when some parts of the country seems like they're going backwards. Go back and look at some of your heroes, people like this is nothing new. This Mm -hmm. is nothing that was brought on by, you know, a liberal agenda or anything. People have loved each other in many different ways since the beginning of time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely
1: you know whether it is a polyamorous relationship homosexual bisexual i don't know i don't care this is nothing new so there's this really great really great
0: book called outlaw marriages and it's it focuses on 15 hidden stories of extraordinary same-sex couples and it really focuses on how the 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 people coupling together really pushed these People's careers farther, like it talks about um, Mercedes de la Costa and Greta Garbo. Mm-hmm. Was Mercedes helped Greta select the films that she was in. And, and Greta Garbo famously never had a bomb until she did one film directed, oddly enough, by George Cooker, who was himself gay, called uh, Two Faced Woman. That was her, that was her, in her entire career, that was her only flop. And oddly, that's her last film as well but it, it just it's it's great it talks about William Haynes it talks about Greta Garbo a lo- lot of inspiring stories in there Gertrude Stein so check that out if you want to get more of a history of uh, of, uh, of same-sex couples that really supported each other because I think you get this history of a lot of under act- the carpet swept yes, under the rug yes uh, actors that you know that were gay and hit it you know or maybe had gay affairs or rumors but th- these are these are real stories about about same-sex couples that succeeded, that that supported each other and made each other's careers go farther, and and they're really inspiring, especially in today. Today, to read that people back then, you know, were able to do that, it, it's great.
1: So later on this month for Pride, we are going to be doing a double feature that are focused on homosexuality. One I feel was good in its intention of trying to be one of the first groundbreaking films for homosexuality. The other one succeeds better, and we'll talk about those later. But I'd say that my question for you is that there are a lot of films out there, especially from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that really just try to play homosexuality as a joke, whether crassly or flamboyantly and, and cute and quirkily. And I find a lot of those problematic these days, but would you say that those films are actually worth watching so you can at least open the conversation of why representation is important.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it it you have to, and we've talked about this with vintage film, you really have to watch them in the context in which they were made and know a little bit about what was going on at the time, just because... You know, you might just assume, oh, they were just homophobes and everything. it's like, well, I mean, maybe in some ways they were they were displaying homosexuality homosexuality to really start the conversation, even even if it was a negative or stereotypical representation, you know, that that did start the conversation. I mean, some of it, yeah, they they kind of take make light of it or they they go, oh, you know, gays are funny.
1: Yeah.
0: When, you know,
1: the funny gay neighbor, the funny gay gardener. Yep, the interior decorator that comes in, you know. you know, and even in TV they did that. Bewitched, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <know. All> in. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> and um, and and you you do. You do get to a point in history too where like there's a film from 1982 that we should
1: we should look at called Making
0: Love. Oh and,
1: yeah, Gregory Harrison's in that.
0: Yeah, and and the the actors, despite public backlash even midnight express
1: yeah
0: um you know they they did they played these roles and with midnight express what's interesting is in the film another man comes on to to the lead character billy and he in the film he rejects the advance mm-hmm. but in real life i mean he'd been in this jail for so long he he welcomed it and he, he he's documented saying that he's like yeah I, I did I, I had sex with the, with, with the man and, and when I was when I was locked up and in the film even though it's presented and not accepted like he, he turns him down um in in a in a very respectful way it was it got a lot of backlash yeah even though that film was so big you know it was such a celebrated film and then making love the actors, all experienced backlash for playing in a, in a movie where homosexuality was not a negative entirely.
1: Yeah. Now I'm glad that I have you as a friend to help educate me. And now that we have this podcast to educate my listeners, or at least get them starting that conversation, maybe getting that, that conversation even starting in their heads before they actually had it with another person. That representation is important, but I feel that we do need to go back and watch these films, recognize the times that they were made in mm-hmm. and recognize the progress that we've made as a society and by all means, for God's sake, let's not go backwards
0: yeah and 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 thank you for that it's it's interesting an interesting question to ask when you're watching these old films and you maybe see homophobia or you see you know, them just using gay characters as comic relief. I mean, yeah, that that is negative in a lot of ways. It is bad, but you have to realize at that point, at some point, somebody said, Hey, we were represented incorrectly here. I'm gonna show us right. I'm gonna show a different view. So so in that regard, maybe it's good because then it's less shocking because it's like, oh yeah, we saw those characters before. We've seen this type before, but now they're portrayed in this way. So that's where I think you get some positive out of that, that even though it may be a negative representation, like we
1: said, it starts a conversation and it starts other films. 100%. Well, Mikey, thank you for sitting in on this one. And of course, we're going to have many more podcasts on the Cultworthy Classic, but I really thought it was important to have this conversation to start off Pride Month with. Yeah, I,
0: th- I think it's a great way.
1: So everyone, go back and listen to this podcast again if you miss the names of those books or if you miss the titles of those movies. And do check out that documentary on YouTube about Dorothy Asner. Educate yourself. It's a fascinating story. And there are stories that I honestly feel should have some kind of dramatic biopic done of them. I-, I feel like we should be seeing biopics about these films the way we would see them about a drug addled rock star Mm -hmm. or or, or a blues singer, you know, like these are human stories that should be, I feel told respectively and just kind of getting the iconic representation out there.
0: Do, Do you know the film 32 short films about Glenn Gould? Yes. Something like that featuring just these little short films about these gay, you know, homosexual, um, you know, celebrities, I think would be kind of cool.
1: I agree, 100%. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And have a great June. Have a great Pride Month. Go to your local Pride Fest. Go to your local Pride Parade. COVID is still out there, but obviously people are getting more comfortable getting into these routines of having festivals again and celebrating things. And I feel that we've gone through almost three years of not celebrating things. So if you're going to celebrate something Celebrate Pride this month. Yeah, watch watch
0: a new gay-themed film, or you know, support a gay actor every every week this month. <laughs> Start a little gay film club for the month.
1: Well, uh, my name is Antonio. I was here with Mikey. Thanks, guys. It's great as always. And uh, we will see you next week. Make sure you follow me on all of my socials: Instagram, Letterboxd. Facebook, and, of course, the Twitter. And you can follow my website, thecultworthy.com, for all blogs, updates, reviews, and new episodes, as well as links to my favorite indie podcasters in the podcasting universe. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.